0: back to the Lubbers Hole. For one more week, we are crossing the line. So you're with Ian and with Mike as we dig into some of our favourite bits in the canon this week on the subject of music. Music, Mike. What what do we get into when we start thinking
1: of music in the canon? You know, we remember that you know, music opens the canon, music kind of is the canon. I mean, this is that string that indelibly holds Stephen and Jack together, and it just i i mean I've got little goosebumps all over my arms. You and I have both been kind of going back through the Canon this week thinking about music, and it's everywhere it's just everywhere
0: it is you've all heard us in the past episodes dipping deep into some of the music and scratching our heads about some of the references as well right. So we're going to enjoy that. We're going to spend some time as well talking with our old friend and author Rachel McMillan about her take on some of the musical stuff. We're going to talk about music in the early stages. We're going to talk about music in a couple of key moments in the canon. We're going to talk about references that we've liked. And we're going to talk a little bit about what might be coming next in the canon as music continues to weave our our favorite characters together.
1: Now, Ian... Should we say anything about our new theme music? Ah.
0: <laughs> well, uh, well th- thank you for mentioning it. It might be nice to hear from you all if you like it over and above or instead of the, uh, the Michael Turner's Waltz, which is our normal theme music. The music, as I'm sure 99% of you know, is the Passacaglia from the Bo- Boccherini Nocturnal Street Music. Um, we couldn't find a copyright-free version of that, so we digitally recreated the violin part and we analogly recreated the cello part by me playing it. So I hope you like it. I hope you forgive the corners and the edges, but it was really good fun putting it together. So tell us what you think. Do we stick with Boccherini? <laughs> or do we go back to Michael Turner's waltz? Or do we blend them? I don't know. Right. But it was really good fun making that, uh,
1: making a little recording. Well, it was fun for me because, you know, I was listening to a proof on one of the episodes from my hospital bed and, and I was like, wait, what's this music? This is new music. <laughs> <laughs> I'll always remember that in the darkened hospital room, listening to this new music and then realizing it's you. It's Ian's ah. cello. I love this.
0: So Mike, we're going to talk about a couple of key moments here. that We're going to hear, I think from Rachel, a lot about um, Master and Commander and how those opening moments really kind of set up the friendship between Jack and Stephen.
1: One of the amazing things for me, Ian, is, you know, we had Rachel McMillan on the show so many times. And, and, you know, I follow her on Twitter, and she is just so insightful about so many things. She loves the canon as much as we do, as much as many of you out there listening do. And, um you know, she did a great job of taking us right into the beginning of the canon and the role that music plays in Jack and Stephen's meeting.
0: It's a huge pleasure to welcome back our old friend and past guest, and O'Brien fan and all-round literary enthusiast, Rachel Macmillan. Welcome back, Rachel.
2: Thank you so much for having me again, Ian. This is so fun.
0: It's great to have you back. And of course, this week, we are talking about music um, in the O'Brien books. Do you want to start out by telling us a little bit about music and you?
2: Well, I just, I have a long history of studying voice and opera. I was going to go into that path, but you mm. really have to want it badly. And so in university, <laughs> I was studying it and thought, I really miss books. So I can still, I, you know, study under s- teachers, but have a life in books. Yeah. Um, but because I love music so much and because, you know, in the before times, I was always at the symphony or we have a great yeah. um, Toronto has a great Baroque orchestra called Tafel Music, hmm. and they play on period oh, yeah. era instruments. And so I've always really been into the Baroque period. And luckily, um, O'Brien definitely was as well. So because I'm so musically minded as an enthusiast, I can't help but notice because it it always reveals something new, how it becomes a language in the Aubrey and Maturin series. Yeah. He's very intentional about the music he uses and when he uses it.
0: Absolutely. And he almost puts a marker down for that, right, in the opening paragraph of book number one, Master and Commander.
2: Oh, and that's why I think it's so interesting, because the entire friendship of Jack and Stephen, who are two opposite people, um, you know, in the Ionian mission, he says, they're almost as unlike as men could be. Unlike in nationality, religion, education, size, shape, profession, habit of mind they were unified in a deep love of music. And this starts at the beginning in Port Mahone at the governor's house at a concert where their separate reactions to a piece almost leads to them getting in a duel because Jack is going bump, 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 and he's reacting to music in his physical way. And Steven is having none of it. And so I think it's really (laughs) interesting that what is um, parlayed to be one of the greatest literary friendships of all time starts with a fight over yeah. music so we know from the very beginning that music is going to be a major motif in the exploration of these two men in their world together
0: right and and it's great that it's it's Brought in almost without saying that they're both musically aware. I mean, we're going to learn exactly how, and we're going to learn how that works for characters as the as the books unfold. But straight away, these are two people who care enough. You know, the the guy sitting in the row behind me in the concert thumping his foot isn't thumping his foot because he doesn't care. He's thumping his foot because he's really super engaged in the music, and they both care about that. Even though we get we get a bit of a clash to begin with.
2: Yeah, I love I love that about it.
0: The other thing that's going on, of course in that opening paragraph is one of O'Brien's signature moves when it comes to music, which is that that's a made-up piece, that Locatelli Quartet. Yes, and
2: that I find fascinating because, Ian, as we were doing a bit of a pre-talk, we talked about how often the music just shows how historically proficient he was. If he uses a piece from the early 1700s within the frame of, you know, 1800 to 1817, the Napoleonic periods we're working with, he uses a piece that would have been popular or found some renaissance um he uses pieces that are familiar to everybody he uses popular music like mozart became very popular that people were humming him in the bars and in the streets and he definitely uses that But sometimes he just makes up pieces that don't exist. And I I can't say I know exactly why when he has such a wide frame of reference. (laughs) But he does. He just makes up these pieces for Jack and Stephen to play. Here's the
0: thing. We talked a little bit about the musical detective work um, earlier on when we were reading Master and Commander. This is the volume where Patrick O'Brien decides that the musical. Undertone for this whole thing is the music of Boccherini. Earlier on, around the action with the French squadron, Jack mentioned having heard Stephen playing something that Jack then recognized as being, to use the words in O'Brien's text, a Boccherini suite in D minor. And here we get a reference to a piece that they're going to share, which is the Boccherini C major. Right. And of course, being a music nerd, I'm trying to think what are those pieces actually? He's so particular, Patrick O'Brien, with his reference to real naval actions and to real events in history. There's got to be a real source, and I came up with some puzzles. So, first of all, a Boccherini suite in D minor for any instrumentation, as far as I can tell, doesn't exist. Boccherini for sure wrote lots of chamber music. He wrote lots of pieces for the cello. He was a virtuoso cellist, a groundbreaking virtuoso cellist in the late 18th century. And Boccherini wrote in what you might call the 18th century galant style that Stephen and Jack both seem to like so I look for a Boccherini suite in D minor I can't find one so I think one of two things is happening there either he meant a piece by a bocarini, but it's not a suite in which case I don't know what Stephen might have been playing there are lots of boccarini cello sonatas uh, there are duets for violin and cello and there are quartets and quintets as well there's the very famous C major Quintet, which is called Nocturnal Music of the Streets of Madrid, which was used in the movie at the very end of the uh, Peter Weir movie. And here we have a Boccherini piece in C major described, which I think, well... There are C major pieces, none of which really match the descriptions of the movements. Here we have a description of a noble and almost desperately sad slow movement. So here's where I got to with this. It's just possible that this D minor sweet thing. Maybe he didn't mean Boccherini at all. It, I could imagine Patrick O'Brien meaning J.S. Bach. And J.S. Bach wrote suites for the cello. He wrote a very famous suite in D minor for the cello. This Boccherini C major reference. I'm going to guess. A piece that suits this reference, although it's not in D major, is actually in C major. There's a sonata for cello and violin. It has a slow and sad third movement. It had a last movement that's lovely and complex and triumphant. And I just think Patrick O'Brien's been scattering keys and titles willy-nilly.
2: know from the beginning that this is the guy we're going to be led into this world. A guy who starts with music, but also starts with very innovative made up music.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we've talked about this as well. Yeah. He's, he's using the music to serve, our understanding of the characters as yes. well and you know maybe i can apologize on behalf of you know uh, emotionally stunted male british people of a certain age we're not always that good at at uh, at coming up ourselves with dialogue that expresses what's going on internally
2: absolutely
0: even after the two have met on this musical occasion and almost fallen out we start to see them sounding each other out. And Stephen, particularly, as he comes aboard the Sophie, using music as one of
1: the touchstones for him figuring out his his place in the ship's company, right? Right, right. He does. And, and uh, I was going to say, in one moment, even before coming aboard, you know, that yeah. that morning after, the night before, we've got, you know, these guys were about to go off maybe even a duel, but instead – uh, we've got them meeting up at the coffee shop here and, and Jack sees Stephen across the road near the coffee house. And Jack is thinking back to his behavior the night before. And I love it. He, he walks in and he says, uh, Mr. M- Mr. Matron, why? Why, there you are, sir. I owe you a thousand apologies, I'm afraid. I must have been a sad bore to you last night. And I hope you will forgive me. We sailors hear so little music and are so little used to genteel company that we grow carried away. I beg your pardon. And I thought, wow, I don't remember this voice coming out of Jack very often in the canon, as much as I love him.
0: No, no, no. We get a bit of, uh, a bit of humility and a bit of transparency. It's, it's really right. great. And as they settle into each other's company, Jack is figuring out how he can interact With these new connections that he's made, he's got this new connection with his new surgeon, Stephen Maturin, and he's got this new connection with his first lieutenant, James Dillon, the tortured Irish renegade, James Dillon. And it says, he knew very well that his tight, self-contained world was hopelessly out of tune. And by the way, he's also noticed Marshall the Master isn't quite on speaking terms with Dylan either, for reasons that we'll find out about later. And he's haunted, Jack's haunted by the depressing sentiment of failure, of not having succeeded in what he had set out to do. He, Jack, would very much have liked to ask Stephen Maturin the reasons for this failure. He would very much have liked to talk to him on indifferent subjects and to have played a little music. To have played a little music. But he knew that an invitation to the captain's cabin was very like an order, if only because the refusing of it was so extraordinary. One of the features of Master and Commander as well is that uh, Jack has to get used to the loneliness of command, and he can't really have relationships with with peers and colleagues anymore the way that he, maybe he could when he was a lieutenant.
1: Yeah, and you know, and I, I don't think I caught this the first time or the second time through, but you know, even as O'Brien writes us, you know, Jack's thinking about how his world is hopelessly out of tune so even yeah. even in this we're we're musically referencing here yeah. well done, Patrick O'Brien
2: you know I, I've always been fascinated by um the irony of Stephen being a small sparse man who plays the cello and then yeah. we've got Jack who's this huge guy who plays the violin and just how that kind of counterbalances the parts of their personalities uh that come across on the page but I've noticed that music allows O'Brien to bring us back to moments of relatable humanity in the midst of war. Obviously we have like an entire circumnavigation of the globe. So we're being thrust as readers into these circumstances we cannot relate to. But if Jack and Stephen are uh, having a bit of a tiff or if they're preparing for battle, <laughs> then they speak through the language when their words run out because they've yep. obviously spent a lot of time together they speak through music and one of the things I love is that they allow their personalities to project into the pieces they play if yep. a sequence of Bach is really hard then they just fudge through it and like yep. <laughs> make it up vocally <laughs> like this is too complicated um and Ian we talked it's just bum 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 but we also talked about how you know when Stephen is tortured he loses use of his hands for a while Jack doesn't go off he he kind of measures his playing so that Stephen doesn't feel so behind and that's just a little wordless emotional moment that I think is really strong
0: It's lovely, isn't it? And I I love the fact that later on, I think it's later on in the canon, we discover that Stephen, he is listening to Jack playing alone. Just what a great player Jack is. Like Jack's got some real talent. And it's just, it makes that earlier um, kind of soft pedaling by Jack even more generous and friendly and kind of warm spirited.
2: Absolutely. Because he enjoys the camaraderie that they have. But I also think it's a wonderful exclamation point that Jack is a very overbearing presence yes. who is very clunky on land yeah. who doesn't have the grace of a refined nautical officer uh-huh. but he his music is where he can be refined and where we see a little bit of the grace he doesn't have and anytime that I can't remember what book it is, but Jack wanders into a chapel and he hears some organ music Mm. and the descriptions that O'Brien uses to describe what Jack is hearing is in the lines and the mass of the ship. It's like he sees the grace of the vessels he loves so much through the music. So it, it gives Jack a bit of a redeeming artistic quality from like the guy in the bear suit who's, <laughs> yeah. who's always making a mess of things, yeah. which I and, love.
0: And, and I love Jack. I think it's from Jack's point of view, we learn about the this famous Bach um, Chacon from the Partita. And, yes. and he's trying to play it and he realizes how deep it goes. And it's a really kind of perceptive, you know, take on and, this particular piece. Yeah.
2: And it was that, that we were talking a little bit before we started um, this little recording that, you know, I read someone who said that O'Brien, especially in that moment when Jack is kind of absorbing how beautiful this Bach piece is, that O'Brien very much writes like a music critic. Yeah. It's another one of the we can easily say he was the Renaissance men of writers because yeah. he has so many tools in his toolbox. And one of these is when music is expressed, it's done so beautifully it gives you an opportunity to appreciate pieces uh, at least the legitimate actual pieces in a new way which I love
0: yeah and I've heard many people say that they gained by reading the O'Brien books they gained an interest either in history or in period fashions or in reenactment and I bet there are some people out there who've learned to like you know not only the um, the contemporary pieces but some of this older music as well We're going to get onto, I think, the subject of of the movie. And for those of us who can't remember, tell us whereabouts the movie sits in your kind of a canon of appreciation.
2: It's my all-time favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I love it. And I've said this numerous times before, but I think it's because, you know, obviously the movie leaves out my big passion, which are the two women within the series. But the movie does an amazing job of encapsulating The world of 21 books, 21 stories, one's unfinished in a two and a half hour time frame, you're immersed in the world of that you are literally dropped right into the world of the ship and the music punctuates a lot of what's happening when the movie opens it doesn't open with a swelling no. orchestra we're going to get a lot of really sweeping music throughout the soundtrack both from composers and then from the score that was written specifically for the film but it it starts very slowly so that the music we first are introduced to is the creaking hull of the ship and the hammock swinging and I think even a cow or a goat no. somewhere um, bleating and then that's the music that sets up. And of course, later, we're going to get this world of these men at sea with Mozart yeah. and, you know, a very anachronistic um, Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis yeah. by Vaughn yeah. Williams. But we're going to get <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a yeah. great part of that story.
0: And i some Bach.
2: I was thinking a lot while going through the music in the books that I think I remember reading an interview where he said he listened to countless pieces while he was writing um, because there is such a well, but the pieces he chose are highlights from Jack and Stephen's literary musical experience. I mean, obviously we have some Mozart in there because Mozart is mentioned quite often throughout. Um, I was saying earlier that, uh, you know, we even have moments where the historical timeline of the opening of Figaro is matched by Jack and Stephen being in London in 1812 for that opening. So sometimes he makes up pieces. Sometimes he is so targeted and proficient that we get the timeline opening up and so yeah. the range of music that we get in the film the Boccherini, for example the yeah. um the night music it's it's kind of the again it hits on the experience of the books but in kind of the cliff's notes or cole's notes as we call them in canada version
0: it's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, now i know that the movie got an Oscar for sound editing. I don't know if you got an Oscar or a nomination for Mm. score and soundtrack or not.
2: I don't know, but there is that one sequence where it splices an actual Baccarini piece into the music that was composed specifically for the film.
0: And they have that, the great piece of uh, cello music, the, ba- the Bach G Major Prelude, that appears, it's like the theme tune for them being in the Galapagos Islands, <laughs> space.
2: Yes, I and I love that. I love, you know, you always have in television series or movies, the music, that kind of, oh, there's the music because they're going to war or, oh, yeah. the evil guy's back. And in this world, um, it's Bach. And those lizards that <laughs> that Stephen sees <laughs> at the Galactic. Bach and the lizards.
0: That's, 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 <laughs> and that the sounds lizards. like a, a B-movie sci-fi <laughs> plot pitch if ever I heard one. Bach and the lizards.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the Vaughn Williams, uh, the Rafe yeah. Von Williams, which I think is a perfect kind of funerary moment yeah. in yeah. music that it, it really does give the emotional resonance we need for cutting off the men who are i think there's just one of them they have yeah. to cut off uh yeah. this guy because he's pulling down the ship in the storm and so it's a tragic piece and it suits it really well it just doesn't come from a time period that <laughs> oh, time period Steven and Jack would not have known that
0: <laughs> no they wouldn't but you know i mean I, I, for me it was just half a step into musical sentimentality about about that beat in the story, but I can see why they did it, and I I certainly think they've earned it in their very sympathetic, very almost low key way that woven yeah. the music, as you say, into the plot up to that point.
2: And I think you know we were talking earlier about how that the film is obviously an homage to O'Brien, if not yeah. a perfect adaptation, and one of the reasons I love it is because I can sense Weir's passion for the stories. You can tell he is a legitimate fan. And so while Master and Commander, the book opens at Port Mahone at a concert, Master and Commander, the film ends with a musical conversation. Um, You know, they're playing Boccarini together as they're chasing the Acheron into the sunset. And it's the end note for the film is there they are in the cabin. And as we've said, it's so much a part of their relationship and how they talk that for O'Brien fans, that's such a wonderful way to wrap up this story. I, I remember the first time I saw it of many <laughs> just being delighted that it ended there. <laughs> yeah,
0: it made us all think, oh, maybe there's going to be the next one. Maybe there's going to be the next one. But yeah. so far there hasn't. We hear, we hear on the internet, that another, not a sequel, but a, but a, a, a re you might say a reboot might be on yeah. the way. Yeah. Raises the and question. I
2: think, yeah. And if he's doing master and commander as the Hollywood reporter or whatever has announced, yeah. then we can very much assume that we're going to be getting that initial meeting. Um, yeah.
0: Indeed. And I, I love the fact as well that the, the movie included some of the music of the Fordec hands. So we got Spanish yes. ladies, which not, not quite the shanty, but a Fordec folk song. And they even used it to point up the difference between Holland being comfortably in one world versus being uncomfortably not in the other world. Yes. Uh, And
2: I, I love that use of that song. And again, you know, throughout the books, we get this contrast of the music that the men would sing the shanties and the folk songs, were really used for several different purposes. Um, We know that it it was to inspire and to get people riled up to go into battle. I mean, music, Mm. that the Scotch, for years, the bagpipes, were not only to rally their troops, but also to scare off the enemy like what the heck is the bagpipe um but i'm pretty
0: i'm pretty sure that's why mel gibson invented the bagpipes yeah yes
2: (laughs) just like everything else he invented kilts (laughs) in a time where there were no kilts but i think that you know it was also a way a a connection to home um when you're so far away and it was a way for men to communicate with each other and to get all on the same page. I mean, obviously, Hollem is the outlier in that moment, but yeah. it is a bandying, rallying cry. And we see through the books that music is used as another language and through the shanties, through the folk songs, but through Jack and Stephen, who definitely use it to express things to each other and a great way to hide your feelings into wordless conversations, which which I love.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it, so you, you mentioned that music's a language for for characters who sometimes are apart from each other. And mm-hmm. the Ionian mission seems to be an important point here, partly because we've noticed that there's some great music and music references in the Ionian yes. mission. And since we, we've talked with you before about the character of Diana and her relationship with Stephen, By the time we get to Ionian Mission, they've got together and they're married, but now they're on their way apart a little as Stephen is off on his big voyage. And we've had, what, three books now in the podcast where Stephen and Diana have been physically and emotionally drifting apart a little.
2: Yeah. Ionian Mission is great for the music because Jack does discover some balk. It becomes a... A thing obviously they have limited new musical resources when they're out circumnavigating the globe i i can imagine that they get tired of playing the same pieces over and over again just by virtue of the fact that they're sheet music you can't you know land on the galapagos and just pick something up (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so the discovery of new music is a huge thing
0: of course this discovery was a big deal for for jack and for steven We have this great uh, Aubreyism about how Stephen says Bach had a father, (laughs) and Jack kind of ribs him about this. I did. He wrote some pieces for my Uncle Fisher, and his young man copied them out fair, but they were lost years and years ago, says Jack. So last time I was in town, I went to see whether I could find the originals that young man has set up on his own, having inherited his master's music library. We searched through the papers. Such a disorder you would hardly credit, and I had always supposed publishers were as neat as bees. We searched for hours, but no uncle's pieces did we find. The whole point is this. Bach had a father. And this father, this old Bach, you understand me, had written piles and piles of music scores in the pantry. Now, uh, then we get the uh, the little funny knockabout with uh, what music Bach was writing music in your pantry, but no, we we we, we realized right, right. pretty quickly this was the output of of old J.S. Bach,
1: right? And and I love this. You know, Stephen does play with with Jack a little bit about this, but boy, what a treasure trove of music for this whole book! Yes, and it's um,
0: quite nicely echoes the way that Bach's music was was genuinely partly lost and discovered as we
1: we talked about in the episode. Jack, I think, was feeling perhaps a little bit like we are now and and maybe even more so. You know, he's alone there on the Worcester. He's uh, he's playing, you know, still even without Stephen, he's still playing alone, not as often, but occasionally when he's in the mood and he's working on this partita. But he's finding that the more he plays it, the deeper he gets into it, kind of the stranger it gets. Uh, it's to the point, and we're going to talk to, to David about some of this, it, there was something dangerous about what followed, something not unlike the edge of madness, or at least of a nightmare. O'Brien writes kind of looking into Jack's mind as he goes into the music, and he kind of concludes saying he felt that if he were to go on playing it with all his heart, it might lead him to very strange regions indeed. Ian, what's this piece of music we're talking about? Oh, Mike, this is a favourite. This is
0: the Chaconne from Bach's Partita for Solo Violin in D minor. And we've been, I think, justly critical of some of O'Brien's musical references. rather rather passing, rather incomplete, rather fanciful music references. But this is Absolutely, a classic moment. This is a great moment of character for Jack. This piece is absolutely properly referred to, and it really is a big monument in the violin, the solo violin repertoire. So, what better moment to go really off the deep end? What better moment to really dig into the connections of music and the Aubrey maturing canon? What better moment to think about how O'Brien really uses music to reflect on character than this? So. We got the chance to talk to a friend of the podcast, David Curtin.
3: Well, first of all, I just love the way that O'Brien talks about, writes about music, because it's a very difficult thing to do, um, to write effectively about music to people, especially who might not have any technical knowledge of what a dominant chord is, or, you know. So, you know, it, one has to sort of walk this fine line between being overly technical on the other hand, being just sort of vacuous and emotional. And I think he does that maybe better than anyone else I can think of.
0: I, I want to pick up on a couple of composers and a couple of episodes in particular, if sure. that's okay. And David, maybe it's okay if I go straight to a quote because I think there's a reference in the canon that we might be able to get a lot out of. And I want to go to a reference that comes up in the Ionian mission. This is talking about Jack playing a piece on the violin. He had rarely been in a mood for music, it says, and in any case the partita that he was now engaged upon, one of the manuscript works he had bought in London, grew more and more strange the deeper he went into it. The opening movements were full of technical difficulties and he doubted he would do them justice, but it was the great Chaconne which followed that really disturbed him. On the face of it, the statements made in the beginning were clear enough, could be followed with full acceptation, although not particularly hard to play. And then at some point, after a curiously insistent repetition of the second theme, the rhythm changed, and with it, the whole logic of the discourse. And it says that Jack recognized the whole sonata, and particularly the chaconne, was a most impressive composition, and that if he were to go on playing it with all his heart, it might lead him to very strange regions indeed. David, it's not named and there's certainly room for some doubt, but I think we've got a good hunch as to what piece it is that O'Brien has in mind.
3: Right. So this is the famous Chacon from the Partita for Unaccompanied Solo Violin, number two. And this is one of the, if not the best known among violinists, uh, solo work. Uh, and it's it's just a, a monumental work. It's interesting that O'Brien, in that description of Jack's thoughts, you can see, you know, it's leading him to strange regions. Um, So and and what it what it reminds me of is this quote actually by Brahms. Now, Brahms, of course, a great admirer of Bach, uh, one of several composers to take up that chaconne and use it as a basis for a piece of his own. Now, first of all, a chaconne, what it is, is it's uh, essentially a series of variations on a bass line and or a chord progression. Brahms composed a version of that chaconne for piano left hand alone. Um, And this is a quote, uh, I think this is a letter actually to Clara Schumann who was a very close, dear friend of Brahms. And here's what Brahms had to say about the Chaconne. He says, the Chaconne is one of the most wonderful, incomprehensible pieces of music. On a single staff for a small instrument, the man writes a whole world of the deepest thoughts and the most powerful feelings. If I were to imagine how I might have made or have conceived of the piece, I know for certain that the overwhelming excitement and awe would have driven me mad. Yeah, Yeah, it's 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 a really a a very deep and profound. In fact, my son is a violinist, and um, I was in his his uh, his professor his teacher's office uh, not long ago, and he has framed on the wall the entire chacon in box. It's a you know someone made a print of it uh, in Bach's own hand, And, and it's a big poster, but you can just fit the entire thing. Uh, And and it's just a work of art, just the the score of it, uh, much less the actual music. But, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a piece that, uh, again, words can't do us justice unless maybe you're uh, O'Brien. But I definitely urge our listeners uh, and maybe I I guess you can put a a link up uh, to a recording or point us in a direction.
0: Well, let's take a listen. And uh, we'll put a link out on the social media and on the Patreon page so you can all go find it for yourselves. Here comes a little piece of the Bach Chaconne in D minor.
2: They, they're they very creative as arrangers. They, they arrange pieces for instruments they do not have and don't play. Yeah. I mean, O'Brien not only makes up songs, he allows Jack and Stephen to <laughs> kind of make up their own musical world, which I think is so interesting.
0: Yeah, and there are some Bach pieces mentioned there that I'm pretty sure don't exist or if they ever existed they never got found and published Um, yeah the the st mark passion for example
2: (laughs) (laughs) just making it all up and we talked earlier um just before we started recording here about how o'brien was a little bit pretentious um you can tell that the the encyclopedia of music he has the long shelf space of music we have pieces from the early 1700s contemporaries to Aubrey and Maturin, like the Mozart that would have been played, like the Handel they would have heard. Yeah. But he also digs up these composers that have not stood the test of musical time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he, he just assumes we'll all know them, just as maybe he assumes we know which pieces he's made up.
0: <laughs> well, and I think he also, it's a similar way that, you know, he assumes that we'll be okay with what a misentopsil is. And if we care about it, we'll look it up. And if we don't care about it, we'll just take it as part of the kind of flowing, you know, scenery and pattern of the stories.
2: And I I think that's one of the magical things about O'Brien, not just in terms of musical experience, but everything about these books is there is, and I'm, you know, I'm a writer for a living. So I have editors who will tell me as I'm working on a manuscript, you need to make this reader facing, you need to give context. O'Brien does not give context. No. If you don't know it, you can go and get your Dean King book, your compendiums. Yeah. You can I mean we have the internet now, but yeah. for a lot of readers who were reading O'Brien, I can just imagine how it would have been overwhelming. It's it's like Shakespeare. Once you get into it and you don't feel you have to know every last reference, yeah. it becomes readable. But uh he he is a musical snob and if you stop to think about all of it 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 will take away from the story so you just kind of accept that he's info dumping on you and you move on
0: (laughs) yeah he he, he, as you said already said though he does quite a nice job of placing us at at a particular time in the in the real timeline of composers like Mozart um I think there's a moment where Early on in the canon, in post-captain, it's the piece of Amiens, and they were talking about going to Vienna. And I love yes. kind of speculating, what music would they have heard? They would have heard Beethoven yeah. and Schubert, I guess, as well in 1802 if they'd gone to, to Vienna. Yeah. And Jack might have been terrified by Beethoven as a, as a dangerous innovator, but I think Stephen might have liked
2: him. I think Stephen would have enjoyed the kind of romantic, outlandish moments in Beethoven.
1: I love, as you and Rachel were talking there about, who might they have heard in Vienna? And I was trying to, you know, I sort of got me back in my own mind and go, yeah, I remember they were thinking about going to Vienna. Where was that? It was chapter one of post captain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jack is, uh, is saying to himself, you know, that, that he should have sung softer. he's kind of apologizing for some, some prior behavior, but he's telling, he's talking with Steven and he's saying, you know, Hey, hey we've got a lot of prize money. And we've got this long delay over making him post-captain. And, you know, maybe he'll have like six months run ashore here. Um, And he's talking to Stephen about what they might do. And he says, hunting, hearing some decent music, the opera. We might even go to Vienna, eh? What do you say, Stephen? And I thought, there it is, there it is, Jack and Stephen, what if they had gone to Vienna at this particular time in musical history? Wow.
0: But as it was, as it was, they settled down in rural Sussex next to some, next to some sociable ladies and then history turned out to be the way they, ah, t- history, history in the Patrick O'Brien world took the turn
1: that we all knew it was going to take. It did. It did, and and we and we have this recurrent theme that O'Brien does. He kind of foreshadows whether these are kind of good guys or bad guys, good gals or bad gals, yeah. according to their relationship with music. So, you know, we have Mrs. Williams introduced, and 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 we know, you know, the first time we see Melbury Lodge, you know, there's a pianoforte there. It, you know, O'Brien tells us it's surrounded by sheets of music, covered by many more. And Mrs. Williams walks in and she's just all a guy, you know, oh, you're mu- musicians. I declare violins, cello, how I love music, symphonies, cantatas. Do you touch the instrument, sir? She asks Stephen. But in fact, uh, O'Brien tells us she really doesn't mean to speak to him because like ship surgeons don't really rate socially. So we hear, ah, looks like could have been a good person. No, no, no. But not really. (laughs) This is, this is a pseudo musician, not a real musician lover.
2: You know, and it's interesting because we, we talk about how Jack's musical persona is so different from Jack in real life. And they, Oh, there's also the point where, you know, if they don't have that basso continuo that is in so many of these Corelli pieces, they just kind of compensate, which I love. But one thing, that people like about the Baroque period is that it, it does stay within lines. You know, it's uh, if you start a message or a motif within a phrase, it's going to go back to where it started. It resolves. And so even though Jack is a bit of a character and a loose cannon in his musical preferences, he does like things to have a rigid line and they do transpose but they never go too crazy
0: (laughs) we do find that the music becomes part of the character of the connection between Stephen and Diana and the connection between Jack and Sophie Jack we learn can be a bit distracted whereas Stephen at this early stage is I think the one who's the real music lover we have this moment where Jack is outside the library windows And they hear the familiar notes, it says, of the adagio, as silvery and remote as a musical box. And Mike, I think this is Sophie
1: playing. I think so, yep.
0: And it was absurd how the playing resembled the painting, light, ethereal, and tenuous. Stephen Maturin winced at the flat A and the shrill C. Well-spotted Stephen. At the beginning of the first variation, he glanced uneasily at Jack to see whether he too was jarred by the mistaken phrasing. But Jack seemed wholly taken up with Mrs. Williams' accounting of the planting of the shrub, a minute and circumstantial history. So Stephen's willing to be very single-minded in his pursuit of music. Jack, perhaps willing to have his attention go elsewhere.
1: Yeah, and I remember back to this how Stephen can tell that, you know, they've changed who's playing the piano Mm -hmm. outside or downstairs or wherever they are. And Jack doesn't notice any difference. And then it kind of goes even further than that. You know, you were talking about, about Jack and Sophie and the connection and music. And so we have this scene where, you know, Stephen's listening to Jack play after Jack has listened to Sophie play. You, you want to tell us a little bit about that one? Stephen is kind of observing
0: the differences between these different players. He talks about Jack, says he takes pains. He is full of goodwill and industry, yet he cannot make even his fiddle utter anything but platitudes except by mistake. I remember this is early days, right? This is post-captain. Right, it's a, it's right. a very, very different picture later on in life when Jack's a more mature player. On the piano, he says, it is worse the notes being true. So he's saying that the kind of the, the, the false-heartedness, uh, false if you like, of the playing becomes even more noticeable when the intonation is true, like you get on the piano. You would say it was a girl playing, a 16-stone girl. There's an image for us all to have in our heads. Whoa. Uh, his face is not set in an expression of sentimentality, however, but of suffering. He is suffering extremely, Stephen observes. The playing is very like Sophia's. Is he aware of it? Is he consciously imitating her? I don't know. Their styles are very much the same. In any case, their absence of style. Mm. But perhaps it is diffidence, a feeling that they may not go beyond certain modest limits. They are much alike. And since Jack, knowing what real music is, can play like a simpleton, may not Sophia playing like a ninny hammer, but I misjudge her. Mm. Oh. Dear me, he goes on, he is sadly moved. And this is uh, Stephen now getting to cast a a, a sarcastic reflection on Jack's national character. Dear me, he is sadly moved. How I hope these tears will not fall. He is the best of creatures. I love him daily, but he is an Englishman no more. Emotional, lachrymose. Jack, Jack, he called out, you have mistook the second variation.
1: (laughs) And here we, we get a little insight into, into Jack and Sophie and the connection, and we get just pure Stephen right out of the gate. <laughs> this is pure Stephen.
0: Yes, he's a great listener and a great critic.
1: <laughs> he is indeed. You know, one of the things that we find as the canon goes along is not only is there music between Jack and Stephen, but there's music all across the ship And the music seems to get better and better, not just with Jack and Stephen, but also across the ship, as as we'll come to, you know, as, as we move later in the canon. But here, like you say, early on, we're at HMS Surprise, and it says the frigate could boast no high standard of musical accomplishment. Etheridge had never really known the tune of his comic song and now bemused by Mr. Stanhope's port. He forgot the words too, but when at last he abandoned it after three heavy falls, he assured them that well sung by Kitty Pratt, for example, it was ir- irresistibly droll how they had laughed, but he was no hand at a song. He was sorry to say, although he loved music passionately, it was far more in the doctor's line. The doctor could imitate cats on his cello to perfection, would deceive any dog you cared to bring forward. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> this, <laughs> you know, the, the thought of, of, of You know, I can't imagine Stephen trying to deceive a dog by playing a cat on his cello, but I can't imagine the crew thinking, now this is a great use for music.
0: <laughs> and it's another example, I think, of uh, uh, characters that we're meant to see as unsympathetic, like this guy Etheridge. Uh, right. Uh, the first thing that we hear about them is that they are either tone deaf, or they don't like music, or they play the flute. Like, those
1: are the sig- signifiers that we're not allowed to like this person. Particularly the German flute, yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I think as we get to reverse of metal, we're going to find a, a whole assemblage of German flutes. Yes,
0: yes, indeed. <gasps>
1: Coming right <laughs> up.
0: And even before the Ionia mission, as Jack and Sophie are dealing with the extended absence from each other, we get this reference to Jack and Sophie sharing a musical moment on one of those rare occasions when he's ashore. When she, Sophie, had to go in to attend to the children, he went in with her, and she heard the strong, familiar step as he moved about the house. Presently, he reached the music room, and her piano... Notice, it's her piano. Right. And her piano, rarely used, but fortunately retuned for the girls' lessons, gave out a great series of crashing chords, rising and rising with a splendid gaiety, before they dropped to a deep, meditative thunder that merged quietly into a humble sonata that Jack often played and that she herself had learned long ago. Then he took his fiddle, a fiddle far above his station. And by the way, a fiddle much different to the one that Killick sometimes used to talk about. Um, And a Marty, no less, bought from the spoils of the Indian Ocean and played the same piece again, transposed for the violin. He did not play well. It was long since he had had a fiddle in his hands. In any case, the fingers of his injured arm had not yet recovered all their nimbleness. But it would have been all one to Sophie if he had been Paganini. The house was alive again. It was fully inhabited.
1: Ah, oh, I love that. I love that. God, how music, you know, just in the highs, in the lows, in this incredible as you say, in this rare moment of Sophie and Jack at home together. Yeah, right. You know, perhaps leading up to the birth of their first son.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: could could well be. Music is an
0: aphrodisiac. So,
2: really? so
0: Jack's sort of spiritual encounter with the Amati, as, as heard by Sophie, is a bit different from Jack's encounter with his fiddle at sea, as observed by Killick, isn't it? Do you want to do do the Ionian mission quote there, Mike?
1: Yeah, I I love it. In in chapter one of the Ionian mission, exactly. You know, there's always Killick around with the music and and sometimes very critical, you know, kind of in the background about, you know, them scratching and squealing and everything. But, uh, you know, right when we hadn't had perhaps as much music, we opened up the Ionian mission there in chapter one. Thank you, sir, said Killick, tossing it off without a wink. And in an official voice, though, without changing his uncouth, easy posture, he went on, and he's talking to Stephen here, Captain's Compliment, and whenever Dr. M has the leisure and inclination for a little music, would welcome his company in the cabin, which he is attuning his old fiddle this minute, sir. So we know, always starting well in the Ionian. Yeah. We're back. <laughs> Scrape screech, screech. Never a tune you could dance
0: to. Not if you were drunk as Davy's Cell
1: You know, one thing, Ian, in the Ionian mission that... I think really hadn't hit me before until we were going back and thinking about music and music through the canon. You know, we've talked about this connection between Sophie and Jack and music, Jack and Stephen with music. And I thought, well, Diana, even though Diana played, and, you know, we had like in HMS Surprise. You know there were some musical references over in India, but still not kind of directly to diana and and I kind of felt like that was a missing piece for me and then i I got to this point in Ionian mission where um you know Jack and Stephen are there, you know and they're gonna be playing some music and and we come across here. As they're sitting here in the room, O'Brien's writing about Jack, he thought about the time when he and Stephen had competed for Diana's quite unpredictable favors. He had behaved much as Harry Bennett was behaving now, and he had savagely resented anything in the way of tactful hints on the part of his friends. His eye rested on the dressing case she had given Stephen. Mm. It had long since been confided to Killick to be kept dry and ship-shape, And it now lived in the cabin where it acted as a music stand, an unbelievably polished music stand, its candles shone on the gold mountings, the gleaming wood with an unearthly radiance. And so there was this feeling like it was like, wait, in the midst of all their music on the ship all the time. Diana is there in this gift to Stephen. I love it, and it being Diana, of course, it's a slightly
0: outrageous, slight, slightly vainglorious, slightly badly chosen, ill-timed gift. But it's still a gift, and it's you know all the language about it is about its beauty and its radiance uh, and its familiarity as well, and it's really touching.
1: Right, I think as Stephen looked at it and thought, "What in the world we will do? You know, would we ever do with this on board a man of war? Now it's always covered in sheet music whenever we find it." (laughs)
0: I want to move ahead to one of my favorite moments of, uh, of of foreshadowing through music. And Mike, now we're getting into the book that uh, you and I have been talking about lately. That's The Far Side of the World. We've had Chekhov's gun. We've had Chekhov's shark. We've had Chekhov's a bunch of things. But I don't think we picked up on this when we were reading The Far Side of the World just a few episodes ago. And night after night, we read, Stephen and Jack have been playing. Playing where? Playing in the Great Cabin. Playing in the Great Cabin how? playing there in the great cabin with the stern windows open and the ship's wake flowing away and away in the darkness. I'm like, that's absolutely a bit of foreshadowing. (laughs) The open windows and the wake are going to play a part in this story. But anyway, they're talking about playing music. It says, few things give them more joy. And although they were as unlike in nationality, education, religion, appearance, and habit of mind as two men could well be, they were wholly at one when it came to improvising, working out variations on a theme, handing them to and fro, conversing with violin and cello. Although this was a language in which Jack was somewhat more articulate than his friend, wittier, more original, and indeed more learned. Big difference from post-captain. Right. They were alike in their musical tastes, in their reasonably high degree of amateur skill and their untiring relish. He was obviously getting getting himself bang up to date with references to Mozart. He mentions mm-hmm. a couple of Mozart string quartets. And of course, yeah. he mentions Marriage of Figaro. And I got, that takes us into the yes. world of Letter of Mark, doesn't and it?
2: And Letter of Mark. And for readers who have not gotten there yet, um, we know that Stephen and Diana are having some marital issues, partly due to the space between them. Um, yeah. You know, there's some distance and rumors about Diana being. Um, unfaithful, uh, but O'Brien literally ends Letter of Mark with a tableau from the marriage of Figaro. Yeah. The last lines of Figaro are cited in the very last page. And we have this ironic kind of all's well that ends well. You know, the the translation is, uh, then we will all be happy. They're both, you know, a contented married couple. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that just really speaks to how O'Brien often usurped theatricality or music to punctuate what he was saying in a story. And the irony is that as readers, we know Je- Stephen and Diana will never have a smooth sailing course. That's not the point uh-huh. of their relationship. But for the time being, there is this frozen moment that is bolstered by this musical reference that allows us to be like okay things are good for a second we can <laughs> breathe
0: <laughs> yeah it is and i think we're, we're encouraged to enjoy it just for the moment like like everybody's okay that's the whole point of that last verse isn't it that yeah let's, let, let's have a party now because everybody's together and we're happy and it's all going to be fine and what we went before and what may be yet to come might not be quite so but we're allowed to just enjoy it for how it is
2: yeah. And Mozart is great for this because we yeah, know exactly. that he was a popular composer, not yeah. just by the higher echelons, but he was a people's composer. Absolutely. Um, Figaro became so popular. People would sing, you know, it's it's such a different world where people would appropriate one or two pieces from Magic Flute or from Figaro and sing them. Much like pop songs. Yep. And you don't see that a lot in that time period with so many of the operas. So he was a very accessible people's composer. And I think that O'Brien using him as a nice counterbalance to, you know, Bach is. Not as much fun to hum aloud sometimes because of the religiosity, and you know, there's so much in Bach that kind of yeah. makes you ashamed of the way you live. <laughs> you, know, exactly. you, know, you don't want to go to a pub and you know, uh, Jack and Stephen Jack having a night of debauchery and then have Bach in the background, or but I think that,
0: well, I don't know, I think there's, there's a very worldly side to Bach, the cello suites are all dances, uh, and yes. not prayers, so yeah, yeah well, we and, could. Mm. <laughs>
2: oh there's so there's so much in the composers he chooses but i i do love the fact that you can find mozart in Mm -hmm. o'brien in the film version and in the books and letter of mark just ends beautifully if you ever want to see o'brien at the peak of his musical decision making in the, the books then that is a that is one great example
0: fantastic thank you and mm. speaking of mozart let, let's go back to the world of rachel mcmillan for a second <laughs> um we've had one book set in london and we've got a second book coming mm-hmm. in set, set in vienna and there's a mozart connection and Have I got that? yes
2: yeah. so i've got a book coming out in january and it's called the mozart code and it's half set in vienna and half set in prague two of the cities that kind of claim mozart as their yeah. son yeah. uh just as the Cold War is beginning and the Iron Curtain is falling. And of course, Vienna does not fall behind the Iron Curtain, but Prague does. And I kind of use the very real um, instance of Mozart's supposed death mask being found in a Viennese pawn shop in 1947 as kind of the instigating into uh, an MI6 agent who's in Vienna and has his own romantic issues with a woman who I I'm not even lying. Her last name is Villiers. I have uh, <laughs> Sophie Huntington Villiers um, who has a pearl necklace that is kind of my stand in for the blue Peter, because I'm oh. such an O'Brien fan. It's not stealing his story. It's just an ode was- to how, inspiring that relationship and this woman are to me. So of course I thank him in the acknowledgements and (laughs) readers who like O'Brien will find these little Easter eggs.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, those are not, those are not breadcrumbs. Those are whole feasts, right? (laughs)
2: Oh, it's, I mean, and I actually went, and this is a little bit off our, our beaten path of topic today, but I actually went in developing this relationship between my hero and heroine back to Stephen and diana's conversations because they're just so brilliantly written that romance as listeners of the podcast from before know i'm very into this relationship but just to be inspired by someone who really did create such a fascinating uh romance and so i the mozart code is definitely moments of me giving you know paying my dues to o'brien because I, writers are pieces of velcro and things yeah. stick and he, <laughs> even though i write completely different stuff from him he has inspired me a lot
0: Ah, oh, that's great well he he thanks you we thank you <laughs> for helping us keep the uh keep the connection alive um is it is it i don't is, it, is there any place we could get a pre-order of that book if we happen to be um,
2: anywhere amazon like it's up for pre-order now it's on goodreads you can add it amazon any bookshop um i'll start doing you know i i've got a Virtual tour in January that I'm planning. Um, because you can't get everywhere even as the pandemic is ending. But uh-uh. if you Google Rachel McMillan, and I bet, bet that Mozart code cover will pop up. And uh, it definitely has a few little Diana Villiers <laughs> nods in it that I think O'Brien readers will like.
0: Uh. Wonderful. Well, listen, Rachel, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us today. It's been really great. Great to see you again. Um, Yes. And and to hear from you again. Great to talk O'Brien and great to talk music. It's been loads of fun.
2: Oh, always. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs)
1: So music in the canon, Ian. I tell I, you, yeah, I think we could probably do weeks and weeks and weeks about this. We
0: could, we could. But do you know what? We've got we've got books to get back into. So I tell you what, it's it's been great talking this to over. It's been great to have Rachel with us as well. Of course, thank you, Rachel. Again. Oh yeah. And thank you all for listening in and joining in. Tell us what you thought of the uh, musical encounters. Um, we should mention, because we haven't mentioned for a while, that we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash lovers We're on Twitter. We are at whole lovers. Uh, we are on Patreon. If you want to de- join our dedicated ensemble of uh, music oriented supporters you can go over to patreon and hear some more about the lubbers hole at patreon.com forward slash lubbers hole and give us your
1: feedback and your thoughts so the music will continue the canon will continue and and i think ian we're We've at that point where, you know, we've crossed the line. We've had Neptune aboard. We've all been bled. We've dumped the blood out to the sharks. (laughs) And perhaps it's time to pick up the next book next week. What would you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, the reverse of the medal, I should
0: like it of all things.
1: Good to be back aboard.